Hello everyone, welcome to the 68th live episode of Ask Abhijit. It's great to see you all here. And today I'm going to take questions from the live chat. So get ready with your questions. Before I do that, let me just greet you all. Let's see who all is there. I can see Komal, Nikhil, Rajiv, Ashish, Jeet, Shubang Singh, Gurjinder Singh, Dhanya Papu, Jashan, Akash Rathor, Swastika, uh, Prithvi Ram, Rapid Gaming, Atharva, Rashika, Dagar, Megastar, Sushil Kumar, Manan, Usha, Harsh, Bhavesh, uh, Tibetan PUBG player, Sagar Sharma, Karan Nalavat, Nubrohit, Krishnali Marathe, Great Sir is back, Voice of the Heathen, Shiva Prasad, Gurjinder and many more. Great to see you all. Thank you so much for being here. And let me start with your questions. Okay, let's see what questions do we have. I can see many questions. Let's see what we have. Uh, let's take which question shall we take? Okay, let's take this question by Hasmok Solanki. My Tamil friend boasts about Kumari Kandam. When I searched online about it, I found through the Wikipedia reference that it's a myth. Can you please shed some light about it on it? Kumari Kandam. This is a, a, a myth or a story, a legend that is... Uh, it's a Tamil legend that there used to be a great uh, mass of land south of southern India, which uh, supposedly has been swallowed up by the sea. And that is what they call Kumari Kandam. Now, uh, that's what is uh, claimed in the legend or the myth. Now, if you look at the uh, underwater map of the Indian Ocean, there is no such land anywhere near India. I mean, if you, even if you go 1,000 kilometers, 2,000 kilometers away from the coastline of India in any direction, there is no great submerged land that is known to have been submerged anytime in the in the in the time span of the human species the human species about is about 1 million 2 million years old homo sapiens is about 250000 years old indians present day indians have been inhabiting this indian subcontinent for about 60 70000 years maybe 75000 years so that's how we that's how old we are and there is absolutely no geological evidence of any submerged land south of the coastline of India or east or west of the coastline of India. And therefore, one unfortunately has to conclude that as far as the hard scientific evidence goes, this uh, legend is most likely 99.999% a myth because there is no evidence for it. If something like this did exist in the past and it was submerged under the ocean because of whatever geological activity or earthquake or any such thing, then you would find evidence of something like that underwater, which we don't find. For instance, in Dwarka, there was this legend of Dwarka in the Mahabharat. And when you go to the coastline of Gujarat and you go off the coast of present-day Dwarka, the present-day modern city of Dwarka, you find an entire underwater city there, which clearly shows that this story is 
based in 100% facts. The city is there. It's a submerged city. It's maybe 8,000 years old or even older. Who knows? We haven't done any proper investigations. So that is how you prove a claim. So there is proof and therefore we accept the fact that the Mahabharata is correct. The story is indeed true. There was indeed a city of Dwarka which got submerged under the sea because of an earthquake or some other cataclysm. In the case of Kumari Kandam, I will be very happy if any such evidence is found. But thus far, there is zero evidence. And therefore, as of today, we have to conclude that it is a myth. Right. Dungar Singh Chauhan says, you say Gandhi's feeble movements like Dandi March cost nothing to the British, which I agree. But what about the non-cooperation movement, which was intended to cause huge losses to the British monopoly? What losses were caused? Give me a quantitative example of a single loss that was caused to the British. Yes, they wanted to uh, sell their textiles in India. And there was this show of burning some textiles and some products. And there may have been some marginal losses because of that. But where is the major huge loss to the British monopoly or to the British economy? We have, I'm sure we can find uh, records of the British GDP, exports to India, etc. Yes. I'm sure we can find them and look it up online. Is there any such evidence available? There is none. There is none. Otherwise, it would all be written about. Otherwise, the great historians like Mr. Guha, others who extol Mr. Gandhi's virtues, they would have given the proof and they would be trumpeting it everywhere that this is the kind of monetary and financial loss that the so-called non-cooperation movement caused to the British. There was no such loss. There was absolutely no such loss. Right? So that is what I have to say, sir. Uh, the non-cooperation movement was a very nice thing. You know, it's very nice to give very nice titles and names to a, a project. Non-cooperation movement. That's what people do. They give very nice titles to whatever they are undertaking, especially when they are trying to hide the real purpose of the of the endeavor. For instance, you have so many NGOs in the world today with wonderful names. Green Peace. What a brilliant name. It is green and it is peace. But what is the real agenda of Greenpeace? If you examine their activities in the past 30, 40 years, you will see they have an entirely different agenda, which, well, they do uh, do uh, they do uh, take actions that are headline-grabbing, attention-grabbing, and they do make a big show of being very much pro-environment uh, and all that. But what is the outcome of everything they've done thus far? What is the actual outcome of everything they've done? That is the question. And once again, if you examine the real details, which people can't really do because it's hard to do that, it takes a lot of effort to do that. But when you examine the real details, the real data, you will find that they have had, they have a different agenda, most likely. And similarly, the non-cooperation movement was very nice. It, it grabbed lots of headlines. And it made the entire so-called freedom struggle look very worthwhile and very, very active and doing great things. But what was the actual outcome? Where is this, this huge loss to the British exchequer? Where is the huge loss? Is there a single data point that proves this huge loss? There is none. Right? So let's look at the data. Look at the numbers. Look at the numbers, not the narratives. It always boils down to the numbers, to the statistics. Show me the money. Follow the money. Look at the numbers. Don't look at narratives.
and that should be enough. First principles thinking. First principles thinking. Think about principles, not about narratives. Right? So that is what I can say about this. Uh, Shivams, what do you think about the interpretation of the Bhagavad Gita by the Nazis and the strategies, strategies they used from the Gita, the expeditions they made in search of special powers? What is the interpretation they have made of the, of the Bhagavad Gita? I'm not aware of any. Um, I may be, uh, maybe my knowledge isn't that broad that I don't know about what interpretations they have made of the Bhagavad Gita, but I am not aware of any. What strategies did they use from the Gita? Well, the Bhagavad Gita is not a book of strategies and warfare. It's it's a book of morality, the righteous way of living, and and such uh, such things. Right? It is not a book of warfare. It is not a book of strategy. It is a book of personal strategy, the, the, the right values you should follow, what is the right way to follow the path of Dharma, and that's what it is about. There are no special hidden mysterious powers in the Bhagavad Gita. The power is that it makes you a better person, a far better person, more righteous person, if you follow the path that is outlined by uh, Shri Krishna. That's what the Bhagavad Gita is about. Right, so I am not aware of any such thing. If if there is any such thing, please let me know in the comments, and I'll be very happy to educate myself. But as far as I know, there is, uh, from from within the limits of my knowledge, I am not aware of any special interpretations, any special strategies, or any such thing. All right, so that's what I can say. Sankalp Gupta says, "Why did Hinduism? Why could Hinduism not spread like Buddhism?" Right, so. If you look at the history of Indonesia, let's let's take a look at the map. I love the map, as you know very well, guys, girls. Let's go to the map. And the question is, why could Hinduism not spread like Buddhism? So this here is the map of our world, of our planet, a flat representation. This is our land, Bharatvarsha, Aryavarta, Jambudvip. So where did Hinduism not spread? So let's take a look at Indonesia. If you can see my mouse pointer, this entire region was Hindu. They all practice Hinduism. Today, people are reverting to Hinduism. In many high-profile cases we have, right? Uh, like the daughter of the former president, Mr. Sukarno. His daughter very recently reconverted to Hinduism, the faith, the, the culture of her ancestors. So the entirety of Indonesia under the Majapahit Empire was Hindu nearly 1500 years. The Philippines, you had Hinduism there. And the Hinduism they follow in Indonesia is, obviously it has elements of Buddhism because I have said this, I forget how many times I've said this, Hinduism and Buddhism are the same thing. There are more similarities than differences. The value system is the same. The culture is the same. It's all the same. It is just a different way of stating the same things. So Indonesia was entirely Hindu. Philippines was entirely Hindu. You have... Hinduism that is practiced in Thailand today, but it is called a Buddhist country. You have the worship of Ganesh, of Lord Shiva in Thailand. You had the Hinduism in Vietnam, in Cambodia. You have Hindu deities that are worshipped in Japan today with, with uh, Japanese names. And that is called Japanese Buddhism. That's what the, what scholars and historians call Japanese Buddhism. But you have Hindu deities worshipped in Japan today. You have examples of Hindu deities which were worshipped in China as well. And you had Hinduism in Armenia, all across Central Asia. And Hinduism and Buddhism were the same thing. 
and therefore i would have to point out that hinduism did spread just like buddhism but today historians want to call it only buddhism they are giving it the tag or the title of buddhism and that's why we that's why we all believe because that's what our teachers say our professors say our textbooks say that it was it was only buddhism the vedas were taught in china the uh, great uh, scholars who went out of india to china to spread dharma this they spread not only buddhism but also vedas they were all experts in the vedas they taught the four vedas and therefore i would have to point out that hinduism did spread everywhere but today there is a certain agenda of uh, that is uh, prevalent in academia and in politics and elsewhere and therefore they are trying to portray everything as buddhism when you have all hindu deities all major hindu gods that are worshiped in japan for instance saraswati goddess saraswati devi saraswati is called benzaitan in japan but she is saraswati let me let me prove it let me prove it so let us search for benzaitan let us do a google search for benzaitan who is benzaitan let's take a look okay let's let's take a look at wikipedia what wikipedia has to say wikipedia typically lies and here it here's what it says benzaitan is a japanese buddhist goddess who originated from the hindu goddess saraswati so they are claiming she is now buddhist but she originated from the hindu goddess saraswati right look at the images of benzaitan there you go that's a japanese version of saraswati as you can see it's the same thing right there you go so that's what i have to say about this that uh, hinduism spread everywhere it was dharma that spread all across the known ancient world and today they are calling it buddhism okay all right yes swastika asks how was an inferior culture able to occupy and influence a superior culture logically it should have been the opposite then how was the abrahamic cult able to spread and destroy dharmic culture almost all over the world okay so once again first principles thinking first principles thinking what do you mean by inferior what do you mean by superior what is the definition in your head of inferior and superior because you are very learned does that alone make you superior if you have great universities great viharas mahaviharas great scholars immense libraries is that enough to make you superior if you have a great prosperous fabulously wealthy nation is it enough to make you superior or do you also need political unity and a massive military to safeguard your immense wealth don't you need that and if you don't need that can you truly call yourself superior and what makes somebody inferior is a lack of culture and manners enough to make you inferior but what if these barbarians who are who have no culture what if they have a massive well oiled well organized military machine it means they are outstanding in the military domain and then if you have a wonderful culture wonderful civilization extremely wealthy brilliant scholars great libraries great great universities but they are disunited and they have neglected the military dimension of the world 
then they are going to be wiped out by the barbarians. You see this happen over and over and over and over again in human history. It happened to Rome, it happened to Greece, it happened to so many others, and it happened to India in the past 1000 years, because despite being culturally and civilizationally superior, we lacked, we lost the political unity, and we neglected the military sphere, and more importantly, we forgot the teachings of Vishnugupta Chanakya, destroy your enemy at all costs. That's how it happens. And once the barbarians infiltrate your lands, they will influence you. They will destroy your culture and try to superimpose their culture on yours. That is the story in brief. So it is not enough to have a great civilization, to have a great culture. What is the point of having beautiful universities, great culture, great arts, dance, music, wonderful libraries, millions of books? What is the point of having incredible wealth if you are not willing to defend it? This, my friends, is the lesson of history. There is no point getting wealthy. There is no point creating great culture if you do not pay equal attention to defense, to civilizational defense and civilizational offense. And that's what we forgot. That's what we lacked. And that's why barbarians were able to overrun us and destroy our culture and try to, and try to superimpose their culture on ours. All right. Riddhiman Sen says, were the pyramids of Giza made by advanced human civilization or some alien kinds of stuff? <laughs> uh, I would be so happy if there was some alien involvement. Since I was a little kid, seven, six, seven years old, I was fascinated with aliens. And isn't it amazing if there was some kind of alien contact? That would be the most amazing cultural or, or species level or planetary, interplanetary, interstellar contact that we could ever imagine. But unfortunately, we have been able to find no, not a single piece of evidence of any alien presence on Earth. There is something that looks like tangential uh, circumstantial evidence, some Egyptian hieroglyphics that seem to depict some weird thing like something that looks like something out of Star Wars, some space vehicle or something. And in some other places also you get carvings, etc. of something that looks like flying saucers. But is it enough? To claim there was aliens here, there was alien visitation, it's not enough. It is something that looks like that. That's what's called superficial, circumstantial or tangential evidence. What is real evidence? You find an actual alien artifact or you meet an alien person, an alien being. That is called genuine hard evidence, verifiable evidence, incontrovertible evidence. And that is what we lack. And therefore, what I can say is that there is no evidence of uh, any alien involvement on our planet in the uh, construction of the pyramids of Giza. Now, these pyramids are fantastic, very interesting monuments. Let me, let me share that. Okay, let me share my screen. These are the pyramids of Giza. Take a look from above. Let me see pyramids from above. Very interesting. These, this is here a depiction of uh, satellite image of the pyramids. So these are monumental. Uh, this is monumental architecture. If you see it close by, you can even see that there is a certain amount 
of relief there so it's not entirely flat there is a slight curvature so this is this was created very precisely there was a great deal of precision a great deal of uh, of architectural knowledge of geometric knowledge and they were able to lift these immense blocks of stone and place them all the way up top and we are unable to figure out how these ancient egyptians uh created were able to engineer this marble because to to lift such enormous multiple ton blocks of uh, stone all the way up there you would need modern equipment and therefore we are not able to figure out essentially how they managed to do this there is no way to figure out how they have done this so that is one of the big mysteries what we can tell about the pyramids is that this represents an imperial culture these pyramids served no civic purpose social purpose nothing that served society it was merely to glorify the dead kings of egypt the dead pharaohs of egypt so you can tell very clearly that this is an example of an imperial culture in which the kings of egypt were regarded as gods and their rule was supreme and uh, most likely these pyramids it is well it is the western historians who say this they were most likely made created built by slave labor they have found uh, bodies of dead slaves even children over here so that tells you what kind of society it was it was a, it was a, one could imagine a reasonably brutal society uh, a, what we would call today a dictatorial society very different from ancient india in ancient india you find that all the ancient monuments had a had a civic purpose a social purpose a public purpose the greatest monuments in the saraswati sindhu civilization all the biggest buildings etc they were public buildings they served the public and in contrast to that in ancient egypt the biggest monuments were they were meant to glorify the the god kings so that's what i can say about this but there is no evidence of any uh, alien involvement in the construction of these structures so all i can say that although we do not know how they were able to create these enormous structures there is no evidence of alien involvement in that so most likely it was a reasonably advanced civilization that did this the egyptians okay let's uh... yeah i have answered some so many questions i have answered uh so let me explain how to search for questions i have already answered just briefly i'll i'll, I'll show that so one second so if you let me share this so this is my channel okay i let me remove the question Okay, so this is my channel here. If you want to search for, if you have a question for me, and you're not sure if I've answered it or not, please go to the search button here. And for example, if you want to uh, ask a question about Indus Valley, type Indus and see what comes up. So as you can see, there are I've answered a bunch of questions about Indus, Indus, Indus Valley, etc. If you have a question about Aryans, Aryan invasion, etc., search for that. You can even do it on your cell phone. so please try and search for uh, questions i i have answered hundreds of questions thus far i have more than 700 short clips on my channel already 
it's going to keep coming so please do that i have answered lots of questions it's quite likely that i have already answered a question that you may already have right others says it is is it possible to crack the iit je advanced exam in 6 months from basics to advanced i think i answered this very specific question of one or two weeks ago it is certainly possible sir it is possible i don't know where you stand in terms of your knowledge in terms of your understanding of mathematics and physics etc but as long as you have a good basic understanding of mathematics physics at, at that level at that level then you should be able to crack it very easily in 6 months if you study hard and diligently and if you study smart very much possible so all the best sir good luck and go forth tejas says what is the origin of the word brahminism is it a racist propaganda it is a, a neologism it is a word that has been created by western historians and other people with a certain agenda of trying to to break up hinduism in lots of small components because their ultimate agenda is to destroy indian culture indian civilization so they want to create schisms in indian society they want to create divisions artificial divisions within indian society they want to make the so called see first of all they have created this four level caste system india had a very very detailed a multifaceted multileveled varna jati system varna was your occupation jati means your lineage it was a very detailed complicated system nobody actually cared what varna jati you were from the, you only recorded what uh, what lineages you were from and that's what that's what it was now the british created they could not understand it they could not comprehend it so they divided indian society into four categories based on something that was written in the past in one of the ancient indian books and that's how this thing was created and then they made it mandatory to identify with one of the one of these four so called castes and today it is enforced all across india by the government and that's why we believe also because of our, of our textbooks that we were always a casteist country so they have created these artificial divides and today's colonial system continues that perpetuates that and the academics have have a very sinister agenda all these university professors humanities people humanities individuals they have this uh agenda to break up indian society because they are paid for it by external forces and also internal forces so there are so many enemies of indian culture and, and civilization so that's why they create this these these new uh, new concepts brahminism they say that the brahmins were the most evil Uh, people in indian society they controlled all the wealth all the power all the knowledge and they ma- manipulated indian society in a way that uh, various people were oppressed and marginalized and they are now calling hinduism as brahminism so that they can term brahminism as evil without having to call hinduism evil see if you call hinduism evil you it, it is not acceptable most in most parts of the world to call any religion evil and therefore they have created this new idea of brahminism and they want to call that evil just like they have created this new term of hindutva which is now evil but hinduism is fine hinduism is fine as long as you are passive you never speak up for yourself you never raise raise your head so hinduism is okay okay tolerable but hindutva is bad similarly brahminism is evil but hinduism is okay. it is just different ways of attacking your culture your religion your civilization so it is yeah it is certainly propaganda the origin is 100% colonial and every single academic professor etc who speaks about brahminism who writes about brahminism is an enemy of indian civilization mark my words
Okay. All right. Um, Ayush says, what's my take on Mr. Gandhi referring to the great Sardar Uddham Singh assassinating the monster General Dyer as an act of insanity? I mean, what can I say about what Mr. Gandhi said? Mr. Gandhi, I think I've made it very clear what Mr. Gandhi's agenda was. And yeah, therefore, the assassination of the great monster was, according to him, an act of insanity. I mean, I am not sure if he actually said that this is what you're saying. Most likely it must be true. I haven't I haven't studied everything in the world. I have never been really interested in the so-called independence struggle because we never got independence. And I have never been interested in, in individuals like Mr. Gandhi, Mr. Nehru, and so on and so forth. But I do have a reasonable amount of knowledge, more than most people I, I imagine. So I haven't come across this particular quote of Mr. Gandhi, but since you are saying it, I'm assuming it's clearly uh, something he said. And therefore, it again <laughs> uh, brings out another facet of Mr. Gandhi. Uh, I'm not sure if he condemned what Mr. Dyer did, General Dyer, uh, even if he may have some uh, condemnation of the Jallianwala Bagh massacre. I'm sure it was not strong enough and he did not take any actual real-world actions as opposed to issuing statements. And then this, this uh, uh, characterizing the assassination of Dyer as an act of insanity, I mean, I just don't understand it. The guy, Dyer, killed so many Indians, innocent men, women, children. And if he is assassinated, what's the bad thing about it? Why is it bad? He was never being, uh, he was no, never going to be brought to justice by the British or by Indians, because at that time India was still officially uh, an enslaved nation. And therefore the only recourse Indians had for justice was to assassinate the monster. And why is it an act of insanity? I mean, I simply cannot understand why it is an act of insanity. Rudra says, how to manage the mental health and how do you manage your mental health? My mental health has been worse since the, from the last two years because of loneliness. I'm very sorry to hear this, Rudra. Uh, I've never had any mental health, health issues. I mean, this is something that I've only heard from social media and the media and all that, that people have mental health issues. I have never struggled with depression or any such issues. So I am not the right person to ask this. I am by nature a very, very positive person. I keep myself very busy. I have many projects to work on. Since I am so busy, I have I don't have the time to think about, oh, I am, am I feeling ba bad, all that. I have always been an extremely positive person, even when things are not fine. So uh, maybe it's a matter of attitude, but I am not the right person to give advice about mental health issues or any such problems because I am not a qualified uh, professional in this matter. So please, my friend Rudra, I, I am very sorry that you're not feeling well. I wish you the very best of luck and the very best of health. Please consult a qualified professional and get the requisite help. And I'm sure you will be fine. I mean, I can see your, your picture. You look quite young. Uh, loneliness, you're saying, well, I'm not quite sure what caused the, the loneliness. Uh, the, the, the solution to loneliness is to make friends and mingle with people and interact socially. So if you can manage to do that, that may certainly alleviate the issue. But my simple suggestion and my request is please seek help. Go to a qualified good mental health professional and since you are so young i am sure 
your problem will be resolved very quickly please please do that and all the best my friend all the best i wish you nothing but the very best of luck and health all right let's take some more questions um <laughs> what kind of oil do you use for my hair i have no oil in my hair right now i rarely use oil i think um i think coconut oil is supposed to be the one of the best oil for for health that's what we know for thousands of years i think indians have always used coconut oil for health and there is amla oil and other things as well if you want to know the best oil for your hair seek advice from an ayurvedic practitioner or from ayurvedic knowledge that is now available freely online so i personally don't use hair oil very much so anyhow that's the answer <laughs> okay let's take some more questions um okay sports Uh, Nitesh says, "My insight on which sports were played in ancient India was India a superpower in sports back then? So in the old days, there was no World Cup or anything because the world was a smaller place, smaller because we did not have the kind of transportation and communication we have today, right? We did not have aircraft, we did not have uh, trains, and we did not did not have the kind of communication uh, technologies that we have today. I am speaking right now in this room." in my study live to all of you and i'm i'm able to instantaneously reach out to people all across the world right so in the ancient days we did not have that people who lived in india may not know anyone who lived in greece people who lived in greece may not know anybody who lived in therefore there was no the the, the kind of interconnectedness we have today wasn't there in the past and therefore i imagine there were no world cups of any sports and all that but what sports were played in in india so i think the sport of kabaddi is a very ancient sport it is played in india and in iran as well which is very interesting because the iranians are our brothers and sisters aren't they i mean uh, we are the same ethnicity the same ethnic group the indo iranians they call it but uh, in old days they would have called the indians and iranians as the aryans the arya people all of india north south east west all of us and our persian brother, brothers and sisters now so so kabaddi is a very ancient sport uh, what other sports were there polo is a very ancient sport that comes out of india it it originates in manipur the world's oldest polo ground is in the city of imphal in manipur so polo comes from india and i am sure there were lots of different martial arts in india we know that the origin of kung fu is in india it's now called kung fu it was brought to china by the great uh, monk by the great dhyan master and rishi bodhidharma so he went to china with the intention of translating sanskrit sutras and knowledge into chinese but then he found certain conditions in the monastery there and therefore he was forced to teach all the monks in ancient indian martial art which has now disappeared from india and that was further developed in china in the shaolin temple and it is now known as kung fu so we had martial arts if you look at various uh, if you look at various dances in india you can see glimpses of ancient martial arts in there you know what here is a secret all dance originates in fighting all dance originates 
in martial arts. If you look at uh, in Western India, in Gujarat, they have this dandia, right? Dandia and ras and garba and all that. If you look at the moves, those are sword fighting moves. So it is most likely something that originated with ancient Rajput warriors, some maybe a thousand plus more years ago in Gujarat, possibly. And the same dance is found all the way north in Afghanistan, the same music, the same moves. So there were clearly great martial arts traditions in India, which were wiped out by the foreign invaders of India in the last 1000 years of humiliation. But clearly there were many sports, many martial arts prevalent all across India. We have Kalari Payutu in in Kerala today. It is still present. Thank God. There are martial arts still present in Manipur, which were suppressed by the British, but some of it still survives. And if you look at the story of Lord Krishna playing on the banks of the Yamuna River, the ball falls into the water. He goes to retrieve it, and there's this great snake there, great uh, the great snake Kali. So that story, what sport is Lord Krishna playing? He is hitting a ball with a bat, isn't he? And this is several thousand years ago. So once again, there was a sport that looked very much like the what we call cricket today, ball and bat. That was played during the time of the Mahabharata, during during the childhood of Lord Krishna. And it is clearly a sport that was very old even then. And people say that cricket is is an Indian sport that the British invented. Well, I disagree. It's always been an Indian sport, hitting a ball with a bat. So that's what I can say in brief about what sports were played in ancient India. We have lost so much of the ancient knowledge, ancient information, ancient data. But we can still see glimpses of various things. There is kabaddi, there is koko, there is polo, cricket, bat ball. There is a sport like hockey that is played in Manipur in a different style. So there is so much. If if our historians and anthropologists, etc., would only look around, take their heads out of their books, which are written by Western authors, and actually look around and do some real research, we would find a gold mine, a wealth of knowledge about our past. So I hope that you youngsters, you in a few years, you will be the leaders in these fields and you will bring out all this lost information that is still there, but it's hidden below the surface and it's hidden among the noise and the propaganda. Okay. Hi, Riddhiman. I think you're asking this question lots of time. (laughs) Okay. So the question is, Please tell us about the Majapahit Empire of Indonesia and why did the last king decide to convert to Islam despite their barbaric rule elsewhere? I'm not sure. I mean, this is a part of history I have personally not studied in depth. And therefore, I will not be able to give you the answer of why he converted. Most likely, there was a great deal of trade between the Arabs and the uh, people of Indonesia, the Majapahit Empire. So something like that. I will return to you after studying this in in more detail and i will give you a clear answer so let us let's leave this last part of the question for the future but what was the majapahit empire of indonesia it was the great the greatest empire in the history of indonesia it was a hindu empire they regard it as the pinnacle of their entire existence of their entire history the greatest golden age of indonesia was the time of the majapahit empire it was a very strong empire militarily strong culturally strong they were mainly shaivites they, they worshiped the, the great lord shiva the great mahadev and they also had elements of what we call buddhism 
so that's what it was they had they built so many wonderful temples all across indonesia and even today you find elements of that so that was the majapahit empire i think its pinnacle was in the 13th 12th 13th 14th centuries if i am not mistaken somewhere around that era i think i will revisit this question with more data and i will answer that but that's in brief about the majapahit empire and i will revisit this for sure all right so good question Shikhar Saraf says, can you share your Vipassana experience? Where did you do it? I never went on a Vipassana retreat. I was taught the technique by a Buddhist monk from Myanmar more than 20 years ago. So I was taught the technique. I have done this on and off, not as often and as rigorously as I would like to do it. I have never gone on a 10-day uh, silent retreat. And therefore, I cannot consider myself or call myself somebody who is an expert in this. I know the principles. I know the technique. I know how it's done. But I am not somebody who has risen to higher levels. You know, in games, you have achievement unlocked and next level and all that. Well, I am still at a reasonably basic level. I'm not a beginner by any means. But um, I am disappointed that I have not gone uh, and done this more than I have thus far so um, it is something i have done privately at home only it is very difficult to do it when there is so much uh, so much activity around you when there are people around you when there's noise and all that the best time to do it is is deep at in the middle of the night when there's no noise there is no disturbance etc but once you reach higher levels all the disturbances all the distractions disappear and melt away. But I have unfortunately not attained that level yet. So there is so much that I can improve about myself. So that's in brief about my Vipassana experience. It is one of the most ancient uh, meditation techniques in the known universe. Uh, people call it a Buddhist technique. Well, that's not the case. It is an Indian Dharmic technique. It, it predates the time of Gautam Buddha by thousands of years. It is the technique that Lord Buddha himself used in order to attain enlightenment, nirvana. He used multiple techniques, but some techniques did not work for him. Eventually, he settled on the technique of Vipassana, which is clearly just one form of dhyana. And that's what he used to progress upwards and reach the pinnacle of existence, which is enlightenment, nirvana. So... So that's what it is, and that's my little experience with that. I am by no means an accomplished master in that. Here we go. So Tejas asks, can we really call the crash of the MI-17 helicopter that carried CDS General Bipin Singh Rawat an accident? Um, yeah. So there are three possibilities. How many? Let's say three. One possibility is that this crash happened because there was a technical snag, technical fault in the helicopter. That is one possibility. The second possibility is that there was some freak weather incident, some, some strange weather condition, one in a thousand, one in a million weather condition that caused the helicopter to crash. The third possibility is there is sabotage. So let's take possibility one, that there was some technical malfunction in the helicopter. Well, this is a new helicopter. It's not an ancient, clunky, old Russian helicopter. It's It was a helicopter that was I heard it was purchased in 2009, which means it's reasonably new. It's one of the most advanced 
uh, military helicopters that Russia has. It is built like a tank. It has seen service in for thousands of hours in all kinds of different climates and terrains. It can take machine gun fire, it can take sniper fire, it can even take rocket launcher fire and survive that. It's built like a bloody tank. That's what it is. It can, I, I hear it can climb to very high altitudes. I believe it can even climb all the way to Stiachin Glacier. So this helicopter is a brilliant helicopter. It doesn't crash like that. So the technical snag thing, if it is true, well, then the question arises, who was maintaining the helicopter? Right? Is there, is there a uh, so so that is one problem. There is one possibility. There was a technical snag, and technical snags happen when you don't maintain a helicopter properly. So let's keep that aside. Uh, possibility two is that there was a freak weather incident, which well nobody over there. There were many eyewitnesses. They saw no freak weather, no strange weather, and therefore we can rule the bad weather out. This helicopter can survive any kind of weather conditions. So that is number two, and number three is sabotage. Now, if this thing was sabotaged, then how was it sabotaged? Right, that's the question. How do you sabotage a helicopter? Well, you need access to the helicopter. You need to be somebody who has regular access to the helicopter. And then you need to be able to open up the helicopter and go inside and, and make something, you know, make some changes in the machinery. Either loosen some bolts or screws or something, or, or cut some wires or snag or something like that. Or maybe plant some explosive device, small one, which will detonate at some time. It means that you had somebody in this hypothetical scenario of sabotage. It means there was somebody who had access officially to the helicopter. Even in the case of a technical snag, it means somebody messed up. Somebody who was in charge of maintenance messed up. And then there is the very unlikely theory, in some circles I hear this, that somebody on board the helicopter did something. So these are four possibilities. Now, I am not saying any of these possibilities are correct. But if you want to examine an accident, you have to look at it methodically, logically, and with a completely cold mind. No emotions. Every possibility has to be considered, contemplated, and ruled out. So I am sure this is what's happening right now. I don't have the answers, my friends. I am showing what are the four possibilities. One is technical malfunction, technical snag, which means somebody messed up. Number two, bad weather, extremely unlikely. We can rule it out. Number three, sabotage, who had access to the helicopter. Number four, very, very unlikely that somebody on board did something. These are the four possibilities. Now we will know when the proper inquiry is done. We have the black black boxes. It's not a very extensive crash site. It's a small crash site. The helicopter did not disintegrate over several miles. So we have all the uh, remains of the helicopter. I think we have one survivor. I hope that uh, the gentleman is still alive. I hope so. So we can inter the the army will interview the person and find more details. Now, did General Rawat have enemies? Hell yeah, he had enemies. And some people are speculating that because he was making these big statements against China and Pakistan, that's why he had enemies. You know what? If you have, <laughs> let's consider this hypothetical case. You have a general, hypothetical case. You have a general who is completely incompetent, but he makes very big statements every day. Will your enemies be bothered by that? Do your enemies care about big statements? Words are words. No one cares about words. It is actions that matter. If you have a person who is completely incompetent, but he is very big on words, every day he makes very strange, very strong statements, 
your enemies won't care they'll be very happy to have a person like that on the other hand if you have a person who doesn't make big statements but he is actively working to make the indian armed forces very strong that guy is a cause of concern for your enemies and general bipin singh rawat was a man of action he was clearly taking actions decisive actions that were very harmful for our enemies words don't matter my dear friends actions only matter words ignore words ignore words look at actions so general rawat he had a big challenge big task we have three services the army the navy the air force these are totally different environments in the past there was no coordination between them there was no communication between them at at uh, at the level that you would want the, there to be very different systems very different bureaucracies very different mindsets but in a country like india you need all three to be closely integrated and work as one big machine and that was never there until today and when general rawat was appointed as the cds in 2019 it was his task to take these three very disparate institutions organizations and bring them together and unify them into a coherent whole into an integrated well oiled military machine and that was a work in progress and i am certain he was doing a brilliant job at that and that is why he posed an enormous threat to our enemies who are our enemies china and pakistan right and i think by no by now everybody knows what happened in early 2020 the cds of taiwan died in a helicopter crash in in early 2020 and now general rawat dies in a helicopter crash in a very good helicopter a helicopter that is new and a very good machine and therefore uh, like i said some days ago on twitter i don't believe in accidents i don't believe in coincidences so let the government do its job let the inquiry committee etc do their job the truth may most likely never be revealed to the public which it which it should not this is a very sensitive matter right this is a very sensitive matter we cannot disclose the truth the government cannot disclose the truth to the public because then our enemies will, will also know what the government knows and therefore there will be some generic statements as there should be and whatever consequences are there will be done in secret but i hope there are consequences i see i don't have any answers i don't have any real information or data as to what this was but the possibility of sabotage and a foreign hand or maybe even an internal hand exists it cannot be ruled out we have lots of enemies within the country as well as you have seen lots of people in india have openly celebrated the death of general bipin singh rawat even lots of retired army personnel have celebrated the death of general bipin singh rawat so there is no shortage of enemies outside the country and within the country and these are the issues the government needs to tackle i am sure they are taking actions to tackle this these actions will never be revealed to the public as they should not these things have to be kept classified but i hope that um, the truth will be uncovered at that level and the 
required actions will be taken it is a terrible loss to the country but and and i hope that the government will move quickly to appoint a new cds because see when you have a great leader of an organization there always has to be a succession plan always what if something happens to this leader there has to be a number 2 who is ready to take over at a moment's notice when you look at prime minister modi he has at least two people who are ready who are waiting in the wings in case in the unforeseen circumstances situation that mr modi may have to possibly step aside for whatever reason some day we have a couple of people who can take over immediately similarly i hope that there were a couple of people under general bipin rawat who are in a position right now to take over immediately and continue the great work he was doing the the hallmark of a great leader is that he or she produces more great leaders uplifts the right people and creates a line of people who can take over and replace them without any hassles so that is the hallmark of a great leader i am we know that general bipin singh rawat was a great soldier a great leader he was the right man for the job and i hope that he had groomed one or two people at least who could have replaced him at a moment's notice and i hope the appointment of the new cds will be done soon because this is a matter of national matter of national interest national security i know it's a terrible tragedy we i have paid tribute to general rawat i pay tribute to him again great man and now it is time for the government to quickly move forward and appoint a new cds who will carry on the great legacy of general rawat so that is what i can say about this all right let's take some more questions bobby says it was no accident it's got to be the bears well i don't know about the bears it could be the dragons it could be the i don't know somebody else i i have my suspicions but i will not speculate here but yeah it it is possible that it was not an accident possible that there was some some other reason for the crash all right let's take some more questions i heard that indians only have an indian specific clade of r1az93 and central asians and europeans have further diversity of the wider r1 family rna family how true is this you haven't answered abhijit you haven't answered <laughs> okay uh, so r1az93 okay let me tell you um, the facts there are certain uh, uh, research projects going on right now all right that whose results haven't been published uh you must have heard of dr neeraj rai dr neeraj rai is uh, one of the world's leading uh molecular biologists geneticists archaeogeneticists and there is a project going on right now uh about to to understand the genetic makeup of the indian population at large and the results of this study haven't been published yet and what it's what is going to show i know because i've spoken to him what it is going to show is that india has the highest diversity of r1a anywhere in the world anywhere on the planet indians have the highest uh, percentage of r1a among the indian population and the highest diversity Uh, 
inside R1A. So you have Z93 and you have all kinds of other clades, subclades, etc. within this genetic lineage. So the data that you are referring to, I'm not sure where you found it, but it is not consistent with the facts. And even the published facts that we have today show that India has higher diversity of R1A than, than Europeans and Central Asians. So that is the answer to it. And there are more pieces of evidence that are coming out soon in the next mini, maximum two, three years, which is which are going to put this entire narrative of R1A being a foreign thing completely to bed, completely to rest. R1A is 100% an Indian genetic lineage. It is an Indian origin genetic lineage. And the ancestor of R1A, if you go back up, up, the, up the genetic tree, is haplogroup F. And... 90 more than 90% of non african males are descendants of haplogroup f haplogroup group f is an indian origin haplogroup more than 90% of non african men are descended from the indian origin genetic lineage haplogroup f so i think it sets everything to rest uh, and so so let's wait another couple of years 2 3 years and we will have a bunch of genetic research papers that will come out, which will completely put to rest this entire false narrative of R1A being out from outside India and the Aryan invasion or migration or tourism or picnic into India. It's going to be completely put to rest. So I hope that answers your question to a certain extent. Let's wait for the papers to be published. All right. Pawan says, do you think that Hindi literature and other regional literature, literature is dead because whenever I see any book released these days, all are in English? Unfortunately, you are right. Indian regional literature is almost dead. You don't see any, any you know, high quality literature coming out in Malayalam, in Gujarati, in Hindi, in Odia in Punjabi, in Assamese, in Magadhi, in Kannada. You don't see any of this happening. There are, everybody who has a literary mindset wants to write in English because that's where the eyeballs are. That's where the attention is. That's where the money is. If you are a great writer, but you don't earn money, then you, well, then there's no point writing. So money, financial considerations are at the heart of everything you do in life. And the money is in English literature only. So yeah, you are absolutely right. This entire focus on English is destroying India's rich, incredibly rich linguistic diversity. It is wiping it out. Very unfortunate. That's why I keep advocating that India's education system has to be a two-language education system. The civilizational language, Sanskrit, and the mother tongue. Education has to be only in these two things. English should be optional after a certain age. If you want to take English or French or German or Swahili <laughs> or, or whatever else, take it up after a certain age as an optional thing. But your primary basic education has to be in the mother tongue and in Sanskrit. And that's it. That's how it has to be. So, yeah, that's what I can say. Ordinary anime fan says, why is the Indus Valley script and the Easter Island script, why do these two scripts look so similar? 
even though both places are far away from each other you are right there is a significant striking similarity between the indus valley saraswati valley script and the so called rongo rongo script of the easter island uh, people that script is is uh, extinct now and the people who live on the island are no longer able to read it because they were their their uh, their traditions were wiped out by by invaders european union invaders so why is there this similarity well i don't have an answer nobody has an answer but there is certainly a similarity they do look strikingly similar at least in some glyphs and all that so i think the the solution to the, the when will we have an answer the solution is we need to decipher both the scripts as of today nobody has successfully deciphered the saraswati sindhu script or the rongo rongo script so if both these scripts are deciphered then we will know whether there is any actual similarity or was it just some kind of coincidence of course coincidences don't really exist but that's what i can say as of today we don't have the answer no linguist no historian has the answer as to why there is this similarity and that's a fascinating question that's why these are the questions that should drive research these are the questions that fascinate everybody so why aren't historians focusing on these questions they have no connection with the real world these academics they they live in their small private universes in their private world and they only strive to impress each other but they serve they no longer serve any useful purpose to society they are not solving the big problems they are not answering the questions that people have very very valid and legitimate questions that's why academia is dying a slow death and it deserves to all right let's take some other questions why did europeans not colonize the chinese region well they tried to they tried to but you see take a look at the colonization of india it took a number of centuries india was already broken by the turkic invaders and occupiers who invaded india over a long period of time and then occupied much of it and destroyed india broke india right india still survived but it was a broken civilization india was already softened up over several centuries by the turks and that's when the europeans came in and they were able to play their games divide and conquer the marathas were rebuilding at the time they had already reconquered most most of india from the turks but it was a work in progress and they also suffered from these problems of disunity and politics and all that regrettably it could have been so great so the europeans the british were able to take advantage of that and they were they were able to slowly colonize india they started with bengal then south of india they had a station in western india in surat in gujarat and slowly slowly it it took several centuries for for the entire colonization to happen they did not have sufficient time in china if uh, so so you have heard i have i've spoken about the opium wars on this channel uh, search it search on my channel about the opium wars china's so called century of humiliation so there was certainly certainly uh, this involvement by the colonial powers the the british the americans were also involved in humiliating china uh, you know and so on and so forth so they tried they did not have sufficient time if they had another 100 years they may have succeeded but they did try kardashev scale i have answered this two three times at least so please look at my previous answers uh, it is about uh, 
this question i have answered these questions okay i have answered these questions at least two three times i think i have more than two or three short clips on this channel so please search there and you will find the answer uh kanai but says what did the normal ordinary houses look like say in 2500 bc in ancient india what does their engineering compare with greece and egypt so if you look at the architecture that survives in the saraswati sindhu region sapta sindhu region especially in the large cities like harappa mohenjodaro kalimangan and uh, rakigari etc you find evidence of multi storied buildings multi storied houses so that's around 2500 bc or and even before that before that i'm sure there were, there were single storied houses but at the height of the saraswati sindhu civilization saraswati sindhu era of india's civilization you had multi story buildings in uh, the great cities i am sure even in the smaller uh, settlements but the multi story buildings were like the mumbai's and tokyo's and new york's of those times those big cities uh, harappa mohenjodaro kalimanga rakigari etc those were the great great cities of the time the new york's the san francisco's the tokyo's the mumbai's the delhi's of the time so you had these multi storied buildings and even in the smaller settlements smaller towns villages you had very well organized cities and so on so that's what i can say you people did live in very modern cities very modern houses multi storied houses you had brilliant drainage systems far those drainage systems of 2500 bc were superior to the drainage systems you have in modern indian cities the town planning city planning was superior to the town planning that you have in modern indian cities today 2021 they even had flush toilets in those cities over 4000 years ago so the flush toilet was invented in india and so on so there there was a, a great level great deal of uh, technological sophistication very high level of of uh, research and development uh, standardization of weights and measures and all that which indicates it was a very very technologically scientifically advanced phase of india's civilization okay some more questions uh super sayan says do you think hitler flew to argentina because when the soviet test remains of hitler when the soviets tested the remains of hitler they found it was not hitler dna was duplicate of hitler well dna testing was invented in the 1980s 1990s it became something that became part of law enforcement and uh identification of people of identification of human remains in the 1990s late 90s and from the 21st century onwards so when the soviets in in the second world war era in the 1940s 1950s 1960s 1970s there was no dna fingerprinting there was no dna testing dna itself was discovered in the 1950s or 60s i think 60s it was watson and crick i'm not sure which decade 50s or 60s i think uh, let me just quickly check it Watson and Crick. When did they discover DNA? Mm, discovery of DNA. Nineteen fifties. It was nineteen fifties. So the uh, historical event that you are referring to, referring to happened in the nineteen forties, before DNA was even discovered. 
so there was no way for the soviets to to know for sure this whether this burnt human body belonged to adolf hitler or somebody else and they have i don't think they have made their discoveries public or if they have we're not sure if they, they have revealed the entire truth so i'm not sure there is still confusion and controversy about whether they what happened to hitler's body it is believed the soviets found the body and they took it somewhere and disposed of it in some manner gave it a burial or something i don't know for sure but there was certainly no dna testing available to identify a body maybe they could have identified from dental history or whatever if they had access to that so there is still some question there are, there are still some questions about whether adolf hitler died in a suicide in 1945 i think 45 yeah or whether he managed whether it was a hoax it was an elaborate hoax that he created in order to escape to argentina there are some claims by some people that he did indeed escape to argentina and live out his life there well those claims have not been corroborated and proven so at the end of the day we don't know for sure what happened but it looks like on the balance of everything all the data that we have that possibly maybe probably he died in a suicide in in that bunker in berlin berlin when the soviets were about to move into that location they are they are already started capturing parts of berlin berlin that's what i can say about this okay let's see questions by some other people is balochistan are the baloches an indian or an iranian ethnic group they are an indian ethnic group 100% indian parts of balochistan are currently in uh, eastern iran so if you look at okay let's go to the map map always maps illustrate everything properly let's go to the map where's the map here is the map so where is balochistan so you see the city the port city of chabahar over here here and you see the port city of gwadar over here so this is all balochistan the makaran coast all of this is balochistan it is west of sindh and so so approximately half of it i would say is in present day pakistan and the other half of it or at least one third of it is currently in iran the balochis are not an iranian people they are an indian people no matter what the historians claim no matter what the linguists claim the balochi people are an indian ethnic group they look like the people of sindh and of gujarat they don't look like the people of persia so even though the persians are overall part of the indo iranian ethnic group they look somewhat different from indians today because of the mixing with the turks and the arabs some persians are still pure persians they look more like indians black hair brown eyes and all that but some iranians have uh, a bit of intermixing with the, with the turks and the arabs but the balochis are properly indian so the answer is very simple the balochis are an indian ethnic group okay let's take some other questions <laughs> Vijay Vaghela says when is, is the Gujarat government going to change the name of Ahmedabad to Karnavati I don't know you need to ask the government of Gujarat uh yeah so this this city is named after the 
Sultan, the, the great tyrant Ahmad, uh, Ahmad Shah, what was his name? Whatever his name was, it is named after an invader, obviously, Ahmedabad. So, in the spirit of decolonization, we need to rename the city to the original name, which I think happens to be Karnavati. So, there has been this demand to rename the city to its original name for at least 20-30 years minimum. And that's what the, I think, I'm not sure if it's the case, but I think there were promises made that this was this would be done. But yeah, it's not been done. So I, I'm not the right person to ask this. You need to ask the government of Gujarat, maybe the chief minister, etc. about what is the status? When are we going to do it? Or have they actually shelved the plan to rename the city? So maybe there is some cultural sensitivity. Maybe it will cause communal issues. I don't know what it is. So, So you need to ask the government, not me. Okay, let's see some other questions. Tejas asks, why did ISRO tie up with Oppo? Is it in India's interest at all? Is Oppo a Chinese company? I'm not sure. I, I believe it may be. Oppo. What is Oppo? It's a Chinese consumer electronics company. So I think it's very strange. Very strange that ISRO has tied up with Oppo. Uh... I don't know why they have done it. I'm not sure if it is in India's interest for India's space agency to tie up with Oppo. Maybe it's just a commercial linkage. Maybe there is no sharing of data, no sharing of scientific uh, information. Maybe there is no presence of an Oppo person anywhere inside ISRO. Maybe that's the case. In which case, it's okay. In that case, it's okay. But... uh, I'm I'm sure the Indian government is aware of what Oppo is. Of course, they are aware of it, and they are obviously aware of the uh, national interest. Uh, the 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 fact that ISRO is India's space agency, it is one of the most important agencies in India, geopolitically, scientifically, etc. For India's future, I am sure the right precautions are being taken. Uh, so I think I'm not quite sure why this has been done. I, I read I, I heard about it a couple of days ago. I'm not sure to what extent this tie-up is and what is the purpose of the tie-up. Maybe I will look into it, study in detail, and maybe I can answer again um, in, a, in a future episode. How do you explain the difference between the Dravidian and the Indo-European languages? The numbers 1 to 10 are pronounced quite differently. Sanskrit-Latin is closer to Sanskrit-Tamil. Are you quite sure, my friend, that uh, Sanskrit-Latin is closer to Sanskrit-Tamil? Because if you see India's languages, any any language that is classified as Indo-Aryan and any language that is classified, classified as Dravidian, you will see so much commonality. At least minimum 40% of the words will be in common. More than 40% of the vocabulary of, let's say, Telugu, at least 40% of Telugu vocabulary is Sanskrit in origin. Similarly, for Kannada language, for the Kannada language, 30-40% minimum words are of Sanskrit origin. Look at Tamil, at least 30% words are of Sanskrit origin. Sangam literature, what is Sangam? The word Sangam is a Tamil word, for God's sake. Take the names of all the Tamil of the famous Tamil, Tamil people. Karuna Nidhi. Is that a Tamil word? It's a Sanskrit name. Jayalalitha, Sanskrit. Kamala Hasan. Sri Devi. Hema Malini. 
everybody is named after sanskrit words the entire language is full of sanskrit words look at uh, malayalam full of sanskrit words there are more similarities between the so called dravidian languages and the so called indo aryan languages than there are similarities between any indo aryan language and a european language and yet indo aryan languages north indian languages are classified with europe even though they have way more in common with the languages of south india does it make any sense to you that that north indian languages have much much more in common with south indian languages and yet they are classified along with the european languages with which with with which they have very little today in common you have to go deep into the linguistic roots of words to uncover similarities which points to a migration outside of india from india so therefore yeah some numbers here and there will be pronounced differently and so on but look at the similarities all people on, only focus on the differences right people only want to focus on the differences and they want to kindly to to nicely tune out the similarities people say hinduism and buddhism are separate religions well there is more in common than different buddhism is just one of the philosophical schools of thought of hinduism of of sanatan dharma of the of the dharmic world right the 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 principles are the same the values are the same the teachings are the same the culture is the same the world view is the same some minute small differences philosophical differences and all that are highlighted to to claim that there are differences between these two things and buddhism is a separate religion apparently and similarly between the north indian languages and the languages of southern india they are they are only focusing on certain differences and completely ignoring so much which is in common so once again there is way more in common between these two these two language families or language groups than there is in common between indian north indian languages and european languages so i totally disagree with this formulation of two language families within india the so called indo aryan language family and the so called dravidian language family i think all of these languages have very very deep roots they evolved together they evolved in parallel and the roots go back 70 75000 years before today when the first out of africa migration happened and the first settlement was done in india so that is what needs to be uncovered a priori our linguists you guys and girls who are watching me some of you will go on to become linguists and historians i want you to take up this great task reexamine india's language families a priori without making any assumptions and without harboring any of the biases that are uh, taught in history textbooks by the western linguists and by the indian colonized linguists and historians reexamine these languages from scratch from zero and you will find the truth about the origin of india's wonderful diverse linguistic uh, uh, culture okay some more questions lots of questions i have answered about crispr in the past um 
Varun says, what is the right way to study and understand physics? First of all, you need curiosity. Curiosity. And it's, it doesn't apply to physics only. It applies to any field, any endeavor that you can take up as a serious uh, thing to study. First of all, you need curiosity. You need to have a thousand questions popping up in your mind. Why is why are things like this? Why does this phenomenon happen? Why does that happen? And then you need to be um, to study it systematically. So you need a great deal of mathematical knowledge. You have to start from the basics, from the school level, college level, high school level, college level, university level. In parallel, you have to study the various texts in physics, which teach it uh, from the beginning. So that is the right way to study and understand physics. The main thing is you need to have an open mind. You need to be very curious. You need to uh, be able to ask the right questions and then study the textbooks systematically, step by step. You build a building, you construct a building with the first floor, then second floor, third floor, fourth floor. You can't go straight to the top. That's what people do. People think that uh, there are some people, you know, who tell me, <laughs> I, I... I heard a lecture by a scientist for half an hour, a scientist who knows quantum mechanics, so therefore I understand quantum mechanics, quantum mechanics now. I spoke to so-and-so scientist for an hour. He taught me quantum mechanics. I now know what is quantum mechanics. This is the sort of thing that happens when you don't study it properly, systematically. No one understands quantum mechanics. I have been studying quantum mechanics for more than 25 years. I also don't know what quantum mechanics is telling us. There is so much that needs to be uncovered. Right? And I, what did I say? I did not say I'm an expert in quantum mechanics. I said I'm a student of quantum mechanics. So always have the right attitude. Don't think you're an expert and you and wear all that thing on your head, right? You're always a student. You have to be a student all your entire life. Okay, more questions. Um, I have already answered about the origin of Urdu, the Urdu language. Um, let's take some questions. Which question shall I take? What's happening in Australia? Why do they always suffer from disasters? So last year, I think there was this spate of uh, forest fires, wildfires that ravaged across, across Australia. That's the disaster that I can think of. Apart from that, I'm not sure if there's any other disaster that's unfolding there. There was this big spate of forest fires. Uh, I think last year, it, it was last year. Uh, maybe the last couple of years. So you, let me tell you how forest fires occur. So in the 1990s, I think there was this enormous forest fire in Yellowstone National Park in the United States. Enormous forest fire. It, it burned down a significant portion of the national park. It's a big forest. So why do forest fires happen? Why do they proliferate nowadays? It's because of human intervention. You see, fires are a natural phenomenon. Fires are caused by lightning strikes. They are caused by uh, the focusing of sunlight through a water drop, sometimes if the focus happens on a, on a dry leaf, it may ignite, it may catch fire. There are multiple ways by which fire can occur naturally. And what happens when you have a national park 
or some forest reserve that is protected by the government you have forest rangers and government officials who are interested with the care of the park uh, of the park what they do is that the moment a fire occurs they go and kill it they keep killing the fire now naturally if there was no human intervention the fire would have occurred it would have burned for some time it would have taken uh, it would have uh, destroyed some part of the forest and it would have died naturally that is how nature works forest fires happen and they eventually uh, die a natural death but when human intervention happens repeatedly and forest fires are not allowed to occur that's when you are sitting on a ticking time bomb because a forest fire will clear some part of the forest at one time and make it impossible for a mega fire to ever happen because when small fires happen from time to time to time it will always create some gaps in the forests which which will ensure that no big fire ever happens but when there is human intervention they keep killing the forest fire every time and this goes on for 10 20 years then one day a forest fire will happen which will be unstoppable and no matter how much you try to intervene it's going to burn and burn and burn it's going to wipe out a significant portion of the forest kill all the animals it's going to be a disaster beyond your imagination that's what happened in yellowstone national park in the 1990s i think i visited there a few few years later it was you could still i mean more than a decade later i visited there you could still see the the, the effects of the fire more than a decade after it happened so it is human intervention that causes these forest fires i am not sure what what happened in australia but there was this serious state spate of forest fires in australia now when it comes to uh, a place like the amazon rainforest you have fires happening all the time there these are artificially set fires uh, there are these uh, commercial interests that are trying to wipe out the amazon forest so that they can cultivate soybeans and other things there for animal agriculture because soybeans are fed to cows and cattle in north america for their beef industry so to make the cows and cattle that big to get to so much beef beef out of them you have to feed them soybeans and where do you grow the soybeans you cut the amazon forest you turn that into farmland and you grow soybeans there so that's why in brazil they are destroying the amazon rainforest unfortunate very very sad it's going to it's going to cause problems in the future so these are reasons why um you have such disasters that happen uh, forest fires are caused by human intervention these forest rangers they mean well they say hey there's a fire let me stop it but hey you should let it burn out on its own that's how nature works so that could be possibly one of the reasons why there was this forest fire in australia i also heard that somebody had set up for a couple of fires on purpose arson um i hear it was an immigrant kind of person i'm i'm not sure that's what i heard so yeah there is also a human element to this somebody sets a fire on purpose and it it causes great deal of devastation so that's what i can say about this i'm not sure if it, if there has been a significant amount of fires in australia this year but yes in the last year or last two years i certainly saw that on the news it was all over the news everywhere <laughs> Pakistan is making a movie on Babur with Uzbekistan people they still believe the turkic invasion was good you know what mr imran khan the great captain sir imran khan said 
ترکوں نے ہم پر اتنے سال راج کیا تھا ٹو ہنڈریڈ تھری پانچ سو سال ہزار that the Turks ruled over India for several centuries. That's the claim he made. And he said that proudly. Today he's a Pakistani, but the people are the same, right? So he was saying this proudly that these Turks ruled over us for so many years. Imagine the level of mental colonization, of mental enslavement in the leader of Pakistan, the prime minister of Pakistan, the once, once upon a time, the great, the great captain of their sports team, cricket team. That is the level of mental colonization and enslavement that you find in certain sections of society. In Pakistan, it's almost prevalent everywhere in, in all people. In India, I can see signs of change, but still many of us Indians, many of us Indians have this. So the Pakistanis, yeah, even I heard something like that. They are, they are, uh, they are making a movie or a series possibly about Babur, the great Babur. with uh, some actors from Uzbekistan, etc. And they still believe the Turkic invasion it was good. Yeah, it's it's sad. It's unfortunate. They are all victims. They are all descend- descendants of people who were brutalized. But today they are conditioned to believe they're descendants of Turks, which they are not. When I mean, you see so many uh, videos on YouTube and accounts elsewhere of Pakistanis taking DNA tests and you see what the results are. The results... I don't even have to tell you what the results are. They're all Indians, right? And so this is the thing, you know, it's all propaganda and they are furthering the propaganda that enslaves them. Uh, you have this uh, new Turkic, Turkish Turkish serial about Jalaluddin, Jalaluddin of Khwarezm, in which they are portraying him as some great, great hero and great freedom, freedom fighter. The Jalaluddin who lost the battle of the Indus to Chinggis Khan, the Jalaluddin who left his wife, his family, his people behind and swam across the Sindhu River to escape into India when he knew that his people would be captured by the Mongols. The Jalaluddin, the big coward. Let me tell you what this guy... Uh, one second. Let me show you what a Pakistani has to say about Jalaluddin. Okay, I may not be able to find it right now, but yes. So Jalaluddin Khwarezmi was a big coward, but the Turks are now trying to portray him to rewrite the entire story of this guy. And they are trying to portray him as a great hero. So that is the power of propaganda. We also have this big film industry, but it unfortunately, Bollywood, right? Bollywood. And unfortunately, it indulges in anti-India propaganda. It maligns India's civilization and culture and promotes and, and, and portrays and, and promotes an image, a narrative of the foreign brutal occupiers of India as superior to Indians, as someone who as, as people who improved Indian society. Indian society was downtrodden, backward, barbaric, primitive, and they civilized us. They gave us culture, apparently. They gave us the Urdu language. 
the Ganga Jamuni Tehzeeb, whatever the hell that is. They gave us in the English language. How can you do science without English? So what were Indians doing for thousands of years? So, so the thing is, we need to wake up from our mental enslavement. All of us have some of that. Myself included, I am sure I have some of that. We need to consciously identify where our thought patterns are problematic. And we need to work on that. So this is a good question. All right. Okay, some more questions. Akshay says, do you think nuclear energy is the future as it is the most reliable and efficient form of renewable energy? You know, renewable um, um, nuclear energy is an excellent form of energy. And nuclear reactors, they work very well. As long as the design is good, as long as the operation is good, they are almost foolproof. If you program the right fail-safe mechanisms and all that in there, they will never go wrong, they will never explode, they will never leak, etc. As long as you follow the right practices. It is an excellent source of energy. It takes very little nuclear fuel to give you a significant amount of electricity using the turbine process and all that. So I think it is something that India should invest in. The West and Japan are moving away from it because we know what happened in Fukushima, which was a disaster, but it was a completely avoidable disaster. They did not keep in mind the possibility of a tsunami. And Japan is where the word tsunami came from. So it is something that happens from time to time in Japan. Throughout history, we know that this happened, right? Yesterday I spoke about the attempted Mongol invasions of Japan, the kamikaze divine wind that came and swept away the Mongol invasion fleet twice. What was that? So it's strange that uh, the Fukushima nuclear plant was did not have precautions against such an eventuality. But the plant itself was fine. It was a good design. But they did not create a protection against high waves. It was on the seashore, right? On the sea coast. And similarly, Chernobyl was human error. They messed up big time. Yeah. And so nuclear accidents have happened a few times. But uh, I think as long as you take the right precautions, it's a very good source of energy. And like Bobby is saying, solar is also good. Solar energy is also good. Uh, It's cleaner. Yes, certainly it is cleaner. Uh, So India has a huge potential for solar energy. It is uh, the founding member of the Global Solar Alliance. So we clearly need to focus on renewable, clean energy. Nuclear energy can form a certain part of that, a certain percentage of that. Solar should be a big focus. Solar energy is is, it's free. Right. Uh, And India has so much sunlight. So we can certainly become a solar energy superpower in a few years, maybe in a decade, maybe we can uh, derive a significant, maybe more than 50% of our energy from solar, maybe 10-20% from nuclear if if possible. And there are other uh, sources like hydro, etc. And there are all kinds of alternatives available. So yes, certainly we need to focus on renewable, clean, green energy. And nuclear can form a certain percentage of that. And we need to move away from burning coal and other fossil Fuels. Karna. (laughs) I've answered that question. Okay, let us... um, 
Some people said that Aurangzeb built and funded more temples than he destroyed. How true is it? Absolutely untrue. Absolutely 100% incorrect. There are certain uh, foreign... There's this lady from, from the US who has been on, on, on a crusade to, uh, to rehabilitate Aurangzeb and to, to transform his image from, image from that of a brutal mass murderer to a, to a good philanthropist and social reformer and enlightened ruler. Audrey something her name is. So these are all absolute lies. Absolute lies. This is completely incorrect. Uh, you can look up uh, online. All the records exist of how many temples he ordered to be destroyed and what other atrocities this monster perpetrated on the people of India. Okay, what else do we have? What else do we have? I'm sure there are lots of comments coming in. I'm unable to see them all. They're coming in very fast. Okay, let's talk about geopolitics. Is it a wise decision for India to shake hands with China and keep a distance with America? As we know, America is patting our back to backstab us. Will China get along with India? Answer me. China can certainly get along with India. So the question is, under what circumstances will China get along with India? The answer is, China will get along with India on an equal footing when they respect India. Today, China does not respect India. China treats India with contempt. China shows India as the example of, see, this is what democracy does to a country. And they are right. India is so badly misgoverned until now, until very recently. Even today, uh, the central government is still struggling to effect reforms. There, there are so many internal divisions and strife in India. There are elections year after year after year after year after year. There is so much energy and money being expended in elections. All the energy of the country is wasted on these pointless elections year after year. Why can't you have one cycle of elections every five years? But we don't do that. We want to keep this, uh, this system going. There is so much corruption. There is so much mismanagement and so, and so many problems because of the kind of democratic system we have adopted. We can adopt a far more efficient democratic system, but this is what we have adopted. And India's armed forces have don't have the level of funding they should have. Our economy is not growing at 15% a year. Why should it not grow at 15% a year? But there are so many internal problems. So many things are left to the states to decide. So many matters are federal matters. And even though the central government wants to take India in a certain direction, certain states don't want to do that. And they want to go in the opposite direction. There are so many forces within India that are pulling us in different directions. And these are the reasons why the Chinese don't respect India. And most importantly, India has not become a nation that has this overt hard power. Teeth. Teeth. Military teeth. 
and the willingness to use the military option so the the day india becomes an economic power and a military power of that caliber and it has the political will to do these things that's when the chinese will respect us because respect comes out of fear in geopolitics respect comes from fear please understand this my friends and in other spheres of life also very often respect stems for fear from fear you may not like somebody but you are forced to respect them right so when india gains that level of respect from china then india and china can get along famously but as long as china doesn't respect india we cannot shake hands from with china that's when we need to uh have other alliances even though there's maybe temporary alliances and therefore as of today it is pointless for india to shake hands with china chinese will pretend to stay as shake hands but they will continue their projects to undermine india and to crumble india into pieces so the solution is very simple if you want respect in on the geopolitical stage that respect stems from fear from the fear of your military actions and your economic actions you have to rise to that stature so that's the answer my friends okay any other questions lots of questions <laughs> uh, why is democracy successful in the us is it is it let's take a look at the united states of america um uh, i have lived there on two different occasions in the us so i know the country so what is the us like what is life like in the united states when you are a kid when you are a child what does a child need a young child needs the support system of two parents it needs some things from one parent which the other parent cannot provide it needs some other things from the other parent which this parent cannot come, cannot provide it needs a stable household the stable love and support and guidance of two parents in the us most the overwhelming majority of children grow up in broken families divorced parents they live with either the father or the mother so there is this element of uncertainty and and whatever parent they are living with will have a multi will have multiple relationships with the, with various men and women so that is again an element of instability then the child will go to a school where they are always bullied schools the school system in in the us is very abusive lot of bullying and other problems as well and then when you reach a certain age in the us you do drugs it is a rite of passage every youngster drug, does drugs their parents also know about it and they expect it to happen then there is violence shooting and all that and now you have this new culture the woke culture so it is a nation that is unfortunately crumbling the fabric of society is crumbling and where is demo, i mean look <laughs> how do you how do you measure the success of a democracy right now the us global influence is decreasing day by day the chinese are getting more and more assertive when was the last time you had a great us leader great president the last great president i can think of is ronald reagan in the 1980s so i do not see democracy as being very successful in the us 
I do not see that. And look at the way the elections are conducted there. You have a candidate like Tulsi Gabbard, who is deliberately marginalized. She was not even allowed to be part of the debates in the Democratic Party. They keep changing the rules of the of the uh, of the debates just to exclude her. That is outright rigging. So I disagree with this uh, contention that democracy is successful in the United States. I think the Indian form of democracy that was prevalent in India for thousands of years is the right form of democracy. I don't care about the US, about for India. India needs to revert to its civilizational form of democracy. India is the mother motherland of democracy. This is where India is where democracy took birth. So when India goes back to its own indigenous civilizational form of democracy, that's when India will take off. Okay, so that's my answer, my friends. Okay. Okay, Srinivas Ramanujan, I've spoken about... Mm. <laughs> Did ancient Indians smoke? Some say it's mentioned in Atharva Veda and other questions as well. I'm not sure if ancient Indians smoked. Um, I know that the use of cannabis was certainly... Uh, prevalent in in certain uh, sections of society. For instance, the sadhus, some of the sadhus in certain denominations of the sadhus, like the aghoris, etc., there is this um, practice of smoking cannabis, ganja, they call it, right? Ganja, hemp. So that was certainly part of Indian culture. It was nothing that was frowned upon. It is not, as far as I know from my limited knowledge, it doesn't seem to be a habit-forming uh, activity and tobacco I'm not sure if it was there in India it must have been pre- present in India maybe some people smoked so this is an interesting question I think uh, in certain I've heard that in some texts uh, smoking is, at, at some points in time is, is perhaps specified as something that can cure certain ailments it's, it's something I need to revisit again but it was certainly prevalent in certain sections of society. It was not something that formed habits like like, uh, tobacco does today. Because today tobacco is designed to become a highly addictive thing. I believe that um, cigarette tobacco is more addictive than than heroin and crack cocaine. It is harder to quit smoking than to quit the habit of heroin and cocaine. So that's how dangerous tobacco is today. In the past Uh, Indians most likely smoked something else. It was hemp, ganja in some cases, and some other herbs, etc. in some other cases. So smoking was certainly there, but it was not something that was prevalent across society. Everybody got up and smoked a cigarette. There was no such thing at all. Okay, let me take one more question, and then we can wrap up for today. Do we have any other questions? We have lots. Um, okay, this is by Shrikar Kannapalli. Shrikar, do you think that India needs to invest more on defense forces with additional forces like Marines of the, of the US for more hard power? 
do you think defense should be decentralized i think defense should be completely centralized if you decentralize defense and leave one part of the army in each state under each chief minister it's going to be a recipe for disaster an, an enormous subcontinent sized geography like india needs centralization of power in order to be run efficiently and governed efficiently for the long term interest of the nation and the people so the defense forces need to be centralized and integrated properly that's the big mission that general cds general rawat was on and his successor will take that up and finish the task that he had taken up now does india need to invest in more forces more manpower in defense no india needs to invest in indigenous technology the 21st century is the century of technology you may have a 5 million strong army but if your technology is obsolete you're going to be wiped out to the last man by a nation with 1/10 the number of soldiers you have but superior technology technology is a is a force multiplier imagine you have 100 men with swords and one guy with a rocket launcher can wipe them out so technology is one man with that technology is greater than 100 men with swords technology is a force multiplier india needs to invest in high technology india needs to invest in in its navy in its air force in its missile systems in cyber warfare in other forms of warfare which i'm sure you know about in space technologies right so these are the things that india needs to invest in india can even cut down on some manpower it will not really harm us as long as we incorporate better technologies and 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 deadlier weapons in our arsenal so that's what we need to do and that's what i can say okay my friends we are done for today thank you so much for the wonderful questions very interesting session very lively session and we will keep doing this next week so thank you once again it's a privilege taking your questions and answering and answering them and interacting with you all and i will see you next week in the next session take care thank you bye